Power from the Blazing Stone. Part 5. Nature Comes Knocking. As Merrin made her way to Gwynet Pitt's speaking place, the mild night soothed her worry. The moon had not yet risen above the tors, and there was a strong wind which stirred the long grass and foxgloves, and sang through the gorse bushes which grew near the meadows. A light rain washed her. The green plovers were up and about, and their peewits made the loneliness of the scene seem less lonely. The woo-woo! of a short-eared owl echoed. Merrin was getting wet and tired. She crawled up into Corrin's inner capsule, which sheltered the girl and wheeled them through the night. In the insulated quiet of the capsule, she thought about her classmates and friends. I can't believe they would drill so recklessly just for the sake of a competition. She pictured Nessa with hair the copper of autumn sunlight and chubby Zenner with a will as tough as iron. Idealists, Meredith thought, not people who would betray their principles for profit. But as they traversed the landscape, they could see the damage which had been done. Merrin sat quietly as they passed knocked and toppled tors, smashed monoliths, and barren fields where trees once stood. Merrin? Corin asked quietly. Do you remember I asked you many times to begin drilling without research in order to catch your score up to the others? Yes, Corin, and just look what happens. I hope you learn something. Corin whirred and chuckled. <laughs> well, lads, I was asking these questions as a means of teaching you and testing you. See, up on the cliffs, I downloaded the lithium level test, and each time you answered, no, I ain't gonna do that, and you peered into the past and remembered all the tales and learnings, you showed you had learned from the mistakes people made before and looked for a better way to do things. That's why your score remained at zero. You took zero opportunities. You pass the test. The girl was silent for a long time. So you mean Arluth, Gwen, Onessa, my friends all scored points by accepting these opportunities? Merrin clenched her fists in disbelief. Ignoring the landscape, the trees, the animals? It didn't like them to do this. 
So why did they? Corin asked. The girl thought hard. Because the examiners trapped us in this game by making you units behave as the ancients did. You put pressure on us and made a timer, points, a quota, and my friends must have listened more to the robot voice than the Earth voice. You are the winner, Merrin. Don't you want to celebrate? asked Corin. Merrin exclaimed, Look at the landscape, the monuments and habitats, all destroyed. Where am I going to celebrate? On the moon on my own? And what's the point of winning when I'm the only one? If we decided all these things together and listened to nature, this never would have happened. Corin rolled through the desolate landscape under the full moon. They were approaching Gwennet Pit. Above, the illuminated digits of the scoreboard dispersed into the night. Well, lass, there are some things I need to tell you. Corin's tone was light. Firstly, I am proud of you for passing the practical test. I'm sorry if I seem pushy. I was asking the questions my update demanded. Secondly, the humane and humble qualities you have demonstrated are enough for you to pass the theoretical part of the test. And thirdly, I need to tell you that none of your classmates scored a single point. Their fake scores were all part of the test. You all passed. Merrin's heart swelled as the pair reached the edge of Gwennet Pit, a small amphitheatre built in a collapsed mine. Concentric circles led down to the speaking point where a minister might stand. Around the top of the pit were the seven other earthborn inside the giant white torus forms of their units. At once the robots opened and the children scrambled out. Nessa, with her curly hair cropped above the shoulders, Arluth, with his freckles and big eyes, Sally, clutching her lucky rose quartz, little Zenner, Gweno, beaming like a sprite to see her classmates again, and Alistair, who stepped forward and called out, I knew you hadn't done all that damage. I never believed it. Merrin ran down into the pit, as did her classmates, and they all met in the middle. I knew you ain't no nasty, greedy spriggan, cried Gweno to Merrin, scoring six whole points. They compared notes of their methods, excitedly swapping tales of extracting lepidolite crystals from the discarded sediment of clay pits, of manufacturing drones to find granite structures by the patterns of weathering, of making topographic and bathymetric readings of the land and sea, of filtering trace amounts of lithium from seawater, of foraging for lithium micas in conical waste tips, experimental methods, all ingenious and low impact. Not all of them worked, but all the students had passed the final test, which was to stick to the ecological principles they had been taught in the face of mountain pressure. Once their news was exchanged, the mining units rolled down into the pit and began to speak. You young'uns will soon be growing up, as you well know, it's your thirteenth birthdays tomorrow, and as you develop as miners, you'll no doubt want to explore something of the cosmos. But we can't let any old pisky tear around in space. 
Irresponsible mining caused great imbalance to this world, and the best thing we can hope for is to bring only our best learnings to new planets. Merrin lay stomach down on the grass, listening intently. In the old days, they didn't believe there was bias in their technology. Machines were objective, they thought. But it isn't so. Humanity needs to be programmed into us robots by little ones like you. In return, we can hold the records of the past and the maps of the future. Level by level, lessons were downloaded into us, and you brought stories and meaning to those lessons. We taught each other as best we could, but there ain't no telling how you'll go when there's pressure on, and a deadline to meet, and authority telling you the quota is the only consequential measure. But you all made us proud. Gweno poked Merrin in the side and handed her a little cake and a cup of juice. One of the units continued, In the old mines of the first industrial revolution, the poor workers had no safety measures, not from their bosses and not from their machines. And as you know, many of them were young children, your age, working far underground in hot, loud, poisonous conditions. Sometimes a hundred feet down, at sixty degrees Celsius or more, with arsenic in the air and dust going into their lungs, being deafened by the drilling. They suffered horrible diseases. Life was often short and brutal. But in that darkness, the imagination comes to life. The miners learned to listen to the underworld spirits. Sometimes when a mine was about to collapse, they heard a knock, knock, knocking on the walls, telling them to get out quick. The knockers were knocking to tell them they had dug too far, and that's what robots and piskies have in common. We lived in the imaginations of clever humans until you pulled us up from below. Corin said, the knockers were down there before, of course. Just because something's an imagination doesn't mean it's not real, too. If people are clever, they can hear the knockers when they need to. Climate changing and the world heating, vast nature knocking. The ice caps melting and the sea levels rising, vast nature knocking. The typhoons and tsunamis are nature knocking. The droughts and failing crops are nature knocking. Back in the old times, things got so bad, you humans had to have a great reboot, and then you taught us robots to listen to nature knocking. We remind you, and in turn, you remind us. We remind you, you remind us, and the balance is kept. Spirits above and spirits below. The units explained that the sounds of drilling in the mist and the terrible visual sights of the destroyed monuments and landscapes that had shocked all the children were illusions and just part of the test and would vanish with the dawn. With the units having finished their speech and the earthborn children having finished their lessons, there was music and dancing and celebration for many hours. When morning came, the teenagers emerged from the chambers in their units, which all began to transform into fantastical shapes. 
Nessa's unit unfurled an intricate pattern of pointed scales and waving mermaid fins, sprung into the ocean and swam about, powered by the motion of the waves and currents. Sally's unit produced rocket jets and a propeller, and she went shooting into the sky, a tiny dot. Solar panels captured the light and powered the propulsion. Gweno's unit burst out all manner of elaborate horns and wings which rotated and spun, creating atmospheric vortices which provided wind power to the unit. Merrin led Corin down to the shore and into the water. As soon as the Taurus rolled into the sea, its sides opened to become a buoyant hut with motors and a prow. Merrin hopped inside and peered out the window as they cast off. A colossal ruin of a castle stood upon an island, St. Michael's Mount, and the pair drifted out past it until there was nothing to be seen but sea and sky and the sun rising out of the calm water. Gulls crowed loudly, and just below the surface a school of jellyfish bobbed mysteriously. What other spirits were waiting to reveal themselves? Corin, do you mind if we stay here on Earth? No, lass, I don't mind at all.